Welcome to episode 34 of the Seeking the Military Suicide Solution podcast brought to you by the Military Times. I'm Duane France. And I'm Doc Shauna Springer. We'd like to thank you for taking the time to learn more about suicide in the military-affiliated population. To check out all the shows, search for STMSS in the Google Play and Apple App Store, and you can download an app that will allow you to listen to all the episodes, check out the show notes, and share the episodes with somebody who you think might want to hear it. Thanks again to everybody for joining us to listen to an honest conversation about service member, veteran, and military family suicide. When we're having a conversation about suicide prevention at the national level, one topic that's come up several times in this series is the need to focus on lethal means safety as a method to reduce the impact of suicide in the military-affiliated population. Today's guest is facing that problem directly. Shauna, what can you tell us about our guest? Yes, thanks, Wayne. So... Joe Bartosi is the president and chief executive officer of the National Shooting Sports Foundation, NSSF, the trade association for the firearm and ammunition industry, as well as the Sporting Arms and Ammunition Manufacturers Institute, the standard setting organization for the firearm and ammunition industry. In his career in the firearm industry, he's had the opportunity to work very closely with military and law enforcement. Joe is an attorney licensed to practice in Connecticut and Maine, and also is a licensed member of the Bar of the United States Supreme Court. In addition, he serves on the board of Connecticut chapter of the American Red Cross, which has given him an expanded appreciation for the work our military and first responders do and the stress and strain they face. As with many of our guests, Joe has been personally touched by suicide on more than one occasion. He comes from a military family. He comes from a military family. His father served and his son has served, and he's been directly involved in a number of safety and safe firearm storage initiatives. And his work in this area has been widely adopted within the firearm safety and secure storage movement. Yes, I really appreciate the opportunity to have Joe come on the show, uh, not just for Joe's perspective, but also for uh, the organization, even the industry that he represents. So let's get into the conversation and we'll come back afterwards to talk about some of the key points. Veteran suicide, suicide in the military-affiliated population, families of of service members and veterans, this is critical, but one of the sort of the elephants in the room is the impact of suicide death by firearm. And I'm really encouraged by what NSSF is doing to really address this topic head on. This is something you're partnering with the VA and AFSP. This is really important to you. Yeah, Duane, it really is. We live by the the adage that no one can do everything, but everyone can do something. And what we're trying to do is certainly not be an authority on suicide or suicide prevention, but I think we bring to the table the fact that we are gun owners. We are hunters and shooters. Many of our staff and many of our industry are veterans. So we're trying to bring this to the table to talk to gun owners as gun owners and to provide educational materials and information to help them make good decisions, make good choices. And at the end of the day, we preach education and safety training. And I think that's something that will go a long way towards helping to prevent or put time and space or time and distance between perhaps a suicidal ideation and a lethal means. So again, we're just trying to bring to the table what we can on this topic. 
And, and that's something, I mean, obviously safe storage practices and responsible handling of firearms is something that every gun owner wants to do or, or, or definitely what NSSF does. But specifically related to suicide prevention, that sort of takes things to a different level. Yeah, it really does. We partnered with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention and, of course, the VA on this topic because, again, we're not experts in the field, but there are certain unique, very important elements there that we are learning about and that we can then share with our members and anyone in the gun owning community that will listen to us. We developed, uh, in partnership with these groups, toolkits to reach out to the community and talk about safe storage practices, talk about warning signs. We're giving, for example, firearm retailers all over the country these toolkits so they can spot the warning signs of a customer that can come in and may not be acting perhaps correct in a fashion that would give someone a, a reason to think maybe we ought to take a look at this. And here's a phone number, by the way, reach out and talk to somebody. So we're trying to do that to the extent we can. We mail out thousands of these toolkits to people. And we're really starting to see a big interest uh, in this topic. We had a suicide prevention booth at our SHOT Show in January, and the booth was very well trafficked. We had a lot of attention from the media and from the attendees. So there's an appetite for this education, and, and we're very happy to bring it forward to our members. And this is one thing in my experience, one as a veteran, but also as a clinical mental health counselor, there's often a concern that something's going to be taken away. And especially here that the minute that I say I am having suicidal thoughts and the fact that I'm a gun owner, that there's a concern that their guns will be taken away, that they'll be, that their rights will be restricted in some way. And from what I've seen, that's really something that NSSF is trying to say, that's not exactly the case. We just have to figure out how to do something different. We're trying to remove that stigma that getting help is somehow going to jeopardize your rights or be somehow seen as a sign of weakness. There are plenty of ways to get the proper care and to have the proper conversation. In fact, our literature is entitled Have a Brave Conversation. So you can reach out to folks, have the conversation, get the help you need. And, and we offer several suggestions for how then to securely store firearms, to put the keys in the hands of someone that is trusted right now during a, a momentary time of crisis. I think there are a lot of options before we ever get to that point where all of a sudden you're going to have your guns taken away. And I, certainly that is our hope. And we believe that there's a lot of appetite for that, not only in the gun owning community, but also I think amongst legislatures that we've discussed this with. And in, in even talking to those different populations, this is what I see as a role of what you're doing as a mediator, obviously you're messaging this to gun owners themselves, military service members and veterans and, and even their families, but also you're taking on a role of communicating that culture to the mental health community who may not be familiar with that. So you have these two groups of individuals who are trying to solve this problem of a suicidal crisis. You may have mental health professionals who aren't familiar with gun ownership or have a certain lack of background on that. And then you have gun owners, but NSSF can really bridge the gap and communicate to providers. Yeah, that's a, that's an excellent point, Dwayne. What we've seen is in large part, the mental health community, they're not experts in firearms. They, they're, a lot of them are not gun owners, they're not hunters. But I will tell you that our message and our partnership with AFSB and VA has been extremely well received. I think there's an acknowledgement now amongst the mental health providers that they need that conduit to the gun owning community that they simply don't have at this moment. And they've welcomed us with open arms. 
Uh, I was at the suicide prevention conference that the VA put on, and I can't tell you how gratifying it was to speak with these mental health professionals who were actually looking to us for advice on how to speak to gun owners. And that's really good because we break down those barriers to communication, we can really have an effect. We can really make a difference. And that's what I'm really hanging my hope on is that we can do this together from a mental health perspective, they can deal with that. But to get into that community, to talk to gun owners, as gun owners, that's something we can bring to the table. And look, I'm a very optimistic guy. I think this is going to be a great partnership. I can tell you that it is an effective partnership. Colleagues of mine in the community, the local firearm safety coalition, who unbeknownst to me and unprompted from me as part of my coalition is using the toolkit that they hadn't even heard about it from me or the work that I'm doing here. And so it is being used in the community. That idea of providers, you tried to maybe dispel the myths in the gun owner's hands, but that brave conversation, I see that there needs to be a brave conversation from the mental health provider as well, because this is something that they may not be comfortable talking about in therapy. Yeah, that's probably so. We heard from so many veterans that um, had that same experience where there's such reluctance to talk to their mental health provider who is not familiar with guns, does not understand the relationship that people have. And there's a real passion about whether it be hunting or target shooting or particularly in the military community where there's such an attachment to to a particular firearm. We see so many not comfortable speaking to their providers because they recognize that their providers are not fluent in the, the language that gun owners use or, or some of the terminology and things like that. So we've got to be able to bridge that gap. We've got to break down the barriers and open up those lines of communication. Again, we're educating, of course, gun owners and veterans, but also we're educating the, the mental health providers in, in some of these areas about firearms and how to talk to firearms owners. So again, if, if that's our role, we're very happy to do it. And I'm very gratified to hear your colleague using the toolkit because it's a great resource and we spent a lot of time and effort on this thing, and I'm, I'm so happy to hear it's being used in the real world. Just before we talked, uh, you had mentioned that you're part of a military family. Uh, my father was a Vietnam veteran. Myself and my brother both served. We were actually both in Afghanistan at the same time, which was obviously him being a, a combat veteran, having both of his sons in Afghanistan at the same time. This is not just something that is a professional consideration for you. This is something that's a personal consideration for you. This is a very, this is a very personal, a very emotional topic. Both of my sons served, one in Iraq with the Marine Corps and, and one in Afghanistan with the Air Force. Super proud of these guys and what they did. And my dad was a veteran. He served in Germany during the Cold War, you know, to, to keep the Russians from crossing the border there. And so it's something that is so intimate and so personal to the military family that, yeah, this is my job, right? As president of the NSF, but on a personal level, it's so much more important. It is so much more impactful to me to be able to do this and hope that we can save lives by simply having these conversations. And we worry about the kids when they're overseas, but knowing the statistics on veteran suicide, you never stop worrying, even when they're back. So I'm hoping that I can save some family some anguish as well. And if that's what we can do, then let's do it. And I think that's an important point. And uh, my mother was very relieved when I finally retired. And she said, that whole experiment is done. But I think that's what a lot of people have that mindset of, okay, once you're outside the military. But as you said, again, with the statistics, the rate of 
death by suicide, but then firearms as a method of that, that's something that maybe a lot of military families aren't familiar with how impactful that is and how much they may have to be aware or vigilant farther on down the line. Yeah, and that's where the ability to communicate uh, with your family member, with a loved one, is so crucial. The, the, the observation of behavior patterns is crucial. You'll know when someone isn't acting quite right, and then you have to really be comfortable enough to open up and have the conversation. Ask, how are you doing? Is everything okay? Because if you don't, the options are, are unthinkable, and the regret that you may live with is unspeakable. I think we have to all be aware of our surroundings, and, and we can't deny what we're seeing. We have to be aware, and we've got to be very vigilant and understand the statistics, and hopefully that's a way of preventing it uh, from becoming a reality. In having those conversations, and you say that as a suicide prevention booth at the SHOT Show, and you said that it has been well-received by the, the gun-owning community, has there been any pushback maybe or any, any challenges, or has it been fairly well-received having this conversation about firearm safety and suicide? Personally, I really think there's a sense of relief that we're actually talking about this. We know the statistics, right? Two-thirds of all firearms-related fatalities in this country, two-thirds are suicide, not homicide. Accidents are at the lowest point since they've been keeping records for 115 years. So the issue isn't accidents. That's a very small percentage of all accidental deaths by firearms is three-tenths of a percent. Homicides have been going down, but suicides have not been going down. And when we see the amount of interest amongst, for example, firearm retailers on this topic, it's extremely gratifying. And it shows that, you know what, there's an appetite for this education. People are not afraid. We're destigmatizing this thing. And it was so encouraging to see that the constant traffic at the booth of people just wanting more information, wanting to learn more. And, and frankly, there was a couple that lost a family member to suicide that was manning the booth. And their stories were powerful. And people needed to hear that. We can't hide it. We can't pretend it doesn't exist. And if we could do something to try and prevent somebody from going through this tragedy, why then we ought to do it. And I'm proud to be part of it. But there's been no pushback. We presented this topic at a number of seminars around the country. And it's been well received, I have to say. I, I can't say there's been any pushback at all. And that's encouraging, and, and I really appreciate getting the information in the hands of retailers and range owners and things like that. We've had a lot of discussions um, on the show so far uh, about getting the information in the hands of the people that need to hear it, that are in contact with individuals. We call them gatekeepers, but especially range operators and retailers are really gatekeepers, and, and they can tell either if somebody is a, a client that they see all the time or if it's somebody who's coming in new. It's really important to get the information in the hands of those people that can see it. Without question, we have to make sure that they understand that this is a potential issue. And there are certain things that we've seen. And again, by discussing this with our partners at VA and AFSP, there are certain patterns that seem to develop. And we just want to make them aware of this. We want to make sure that they are prepared, uh, not only for preventing this, but there have been ranges for example, where there have been suicides. And the effect on the staff is profound. So the survivors have some challenges going forward. And again, we're, we want to save lives to be sure, but we also want to prevent the, the agony that the survivors feel. The person that, for example, may have rented 
a firearm to somebody who then took his or her own life, that's a terrible place to be uh, emotionally. So we're trying to provide the education to prevent for sure, but then also to help them deal with the aftermath should the unthinkable occur. So there's a lot of facets to this program. And again, it's been very well received and we're pushing it and we're getting the word out every chance we can. So the firearm safety toolkit, could you describe it for us a little bit, uh, maybe where folks can find it? Yeah, the, the VA has this program. Basically, it's a kit that's designed to engage the entire community on involvement regarding safe storage, identifying some of the risk factors, putting the time and distance between a person who might be having a, a temporary issue or concern and a lethal means. And that may be firearms, it may be something else. We're seeing with the pandemic, of course, now that the rate of poisonings has, has gone up dramatically. So it's not just firearms. From our point of the world, our perspective is we want to make sure that people are safe with their firearms. So the toolkit is a collaborative effort. It's got a lot of great material and resources, links to other resources. And I can't say enough good things about what the VA has done in helping us with this and providing resources and people to really make this thing a reality. So in having these conversations, as you said, you've been involved in this a while. How important was it for you, for the VA, to come to an industry leader in gun ownership and say, we can't do this ourselves? I think it was hugely important. The VA, in my own life, with my own father and my father-in-law and my own sons, the VA has been an important part of my experience. Uh, I know this very well from being a child, growing up with a veteran as a father. They're such a powerful organization. They have such reach and such importance to the veteran community that to have them as a partner here is is immeasurable. It's huge. And like we talk about our friends at AFSP, there are things that I learned from AFSP and VA relationship that I never would have I never would have considered before. The fact that suicide is preventable, that most people that attempt a suicide and, and live don't go on to die by suicide. Those are things that I never considered before. So it gives me so much more ammunition, no pun intended, to get out and talk to people in my industry saying, look, we can do this. All we need to do is to create some time and space and get the the notion out there that we can actually prevent this. And all of a sudden it doesn't seem impossible anymore. It seems like, yes, we can do this. So that I think in and of itself is a powerful message. So yeah, we're happy to carry that forward and we will and continue to do to the extent we possibly can. I think it's important, the willingness to have this conversation. And this is obviously something, again, some of the conferences that have happened recently, even the development of this show, we're at a time where we say what we've been doing for the last 10 years hasn't been working. Uh, And so on the one hand, the willingness for those who are doing the, maybe the clinical work for suicide prevention, but also the willingness of the NSSF to step out and say, we're willing to hear this. We're willing to change. We're willing to have conversations that will help us understand this issue differently. And that willingness to have those conversations is important as well. That's an excellent point. The NSF is doing this, but the NSF is made up of 9,000 industry members and a, and a board which has been supportive of this. The board is members of the industry that had to be comfortable taking this step. They took a leap of faith on this relationship and the board said, go for it and let's see where it goes. And Without that support, this wouldn't be possible, but I think it's bearing fruit in that the toolkits are out there, people are using them. We are having the conversation with thousands and thousands of our members around the country. And I know these things take time, but this is where it starts. We planted the seed. The interest is certainly there. We're seeing it. 
And that's where we think we're going to have the biggest impact. Yeah, I appreciate it. As a provider on the outside looking in, obviously, or maybe not as obviously, but having these conversations with my clients, but not all mental health professionals like we talked about before were. If people want to find more about the NSSF Foundation, how can they find out what you're doing, your partnerships with the VA and things like that? Yeah, there's a couple of places to go. The the main website, nssf.org, has a lot of this information. We've got Have a Brave Conversation. You can search that and get to our materials on suicide prevention. Uh, Projectchildsafe.org has a lot of safe storage material and videos on all facets of storing firearms safely and responsibly. But probably the best place to start would be nssf.org. And if you search suicide prevention, it'll take you to all these variety of places. Uh, We've got all kinds of written materials. We've got videos and uh, it's all free uh, and it's all out there for people to use and we encourage them to use it. That's great. I I really appreciate you coming on the show today, Joe. Dwayne, it's really great to be here. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to get this very important message out. And on behalf of our industry, we're in it for the long haul and, uh, we're really happy to do this together. That's great. In my opinion, having the National Shooting Sports Foundation take such an active and public role in addressing this topic indicates that we might be getting somewhere with moving the conversation out of the academic research and clinical communities and into the general public, which is really a good thing. Absolutely. What I've observed in terms of those who are unfamiliar with firearms and the culture of firearm owners is that people often fail to understand the degree to which there's an emphasis on safety how safety is core to the values of many firearm owners, veterans and other firearm owners alike. When I got my basic firearm certification, safety was repeatedly emphasized and drilled into us as students. The end of each set on the shooting range, we learned about the importance of repeatedly checking to make sure there was no live round in the chamber that we were unaware of. We learned about keeping our safety on until it was time to fire, about never pointing a firearm, even unloaded, at anyone unintentionally, about keeping our finger off the trigger until we were ready to fire. In the movies, we see images of people slinging loaded guns, holding them at weird angles where they would have much less firing accuracy and regularly pointing them at people as an extension of their power. This is not how most veterans who are highly trained firearms owners operate at all. For example, the phrase, every Marine a rifleman, includes the fact that every Marine is trained extensively on how to use and maintain his or her firearm in highly disciplined ways. If you were to add up all the hours that Marines and other warriors spend getting drilled on this, it would be months, maybe even years of their life. So from this vantage point, perhaps it becomes more clear how disrespectful it feels to veterans when civilian clinicians who are totally unfamiliar with this culture ask veterans if they own firearms and if they're using them safely. That is a a great point as you're talking. I'm thinking about another very potentially lethal machine. That's what guns are, machines, and how much we focus on the safety, and that's our vehicles. These are huge machines that could cause a lot of damage if they're not treated safely. And everyone, arguably, maybe to a greater or lesser extent, but understands the the potential lethality of this huge machine that we drive around every day. 
And as a veteran myself who has gone through all of that training that you're talking about, you're absolutely right. The amount of respect that those of us who have trained with firearms have for the lethal potentiality of these firearms, I, I think that's a great point in that people don't understand that is a significant factor in how we approach firearms. Yeah, it's so funny you use that analogy of our cars because one of the, the analogies I've used in terms of how it might feel for veterans to be asked by civilians unfamiliar with, do you own a gun? Do you store it safely? It's like a 14 year old questioning your license to drive. It just is perceived in such an intrusive and inappropriate way. And so there are ways to have the conversation that are respectful and culturally informed but I think plowing ahead and just making assumptions is not one of them. You know, I really liked this interview on several levels. And one of the most refreshing undertones for me was how Joe talked, not just about what he knows, but what he's learned from others. He gave specifics. For instance, he's learned that in many cases, if we can prevent a suicide from happening, a person will not necessarily make another attempt later on. And after reviewing my book, he talked with me about how it was helpful to learn about the mind state of those who are suicidal and how warriors may be uniquely vulnerable to self-destructive intent under certain conditions. As clinicians and healers, we hold some truths that need to be part of this conversation. Truths about how firearms meant to be tools used for the protection of those we love can become weapons of self-destruction during a perfect storm of stress. And the thing is that those we hope to reach, our veteran patients, will never hear these messages from someone whose motives they doubt. In a way, you might say that veterans have a very mighty respect for our perceived power as licensed providers. They view us at times as an extension of law enforcement or the long arm of the government. As long as they think a clinician may have a hidden motive to flag their record or do anything using their power, to make it harder for that veteran to maintain firearm privileges, the conversation will grind to a halt and you'll lose their trust. Once we're clear on each other's motives, it's a different story. We can align around what's really at stake and veterans will engage in creative thinking about ways to reduce potential risk, the risk of a tragic outcome for those they love. They're highly skilled at thinking of ways to manage risk. This interview with Joe Bartosi was an example of what right looks like when we move beyond fear into trust and partnership. I definitely think we're making progress. You know, I definitely agree. I think that of all of the conversations that we're having around preventing suicide, this is the most critical conversation. And at the same time, for many veterans, it's almost the most off-limits topic of conversation. So we somehow have to figure out how to have this conversation uh, because really, uh, if we can make firearm safety, however you want to describe it, lethal means safety, time-based prevention methods, if we can get around this lack of willingness perhaps to have this conversation, then this is the one thing I think can make a significant impact in reducing suicide in the military-affiliated population. I totally agree. This is such a critical conversation and approaching it strategically is absolutely essential. Yes, uh, I agree. And for those of you who may or may not have listened so far to this series, many of our guests agree, many of our future guests agree. 
and and hopefully this episode specifically is able to maybe start some conversations in your community to be able to start to address this. So we really appreciate everybody taking the time to check out the show. Make sure to take a look at the show notes, which you can find at veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash STMSS34, or by downloading the app by searching STMSS in the Apple app or Google Play stores. In the show notes, you can get the links to everything we talked about in this episode, as well as finding the show on militarytimes.com. As a reminder, you can ask us questions and let us know what you thought about the show by going to our Facebook group, moderated by the outstanding D. James, by going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash group. You can find out more about the work that Shauna is doing by checking out her latest book, Warrior, How to Support Those Who Protect Us, and the work that I'm doing by checking out my latest book, Military in the Rearview Mirror, Mental Health and Wellness in Post-Military Life. Both are available on Amazon and we'll have links to them in the show notes. Just a reminder that the guests and reflections on this show are for informational purposes only and should not be considered professional advice. While Dwayne and I are mental health professionals, we are not your mental health professionals. We always recommend that you discuss these things with a licensed clinician. And always remember you can connect with the Veteran Crisis Line by calling 1-800-273-8255 and pressing one chat online with them at veterancrisisline.net or texting 838255. Thanks again for joining us to talk about seeking the military suicide solution and make sure to follow Military Times on social media to keep up with the latest shows. Join us next time for another great episode and until then remember you're not alone ever.